Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Sean McElwee, co-founder of Data for Progress and contributor at The Outline and The Nation. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Of course, we're glad to have you. Now, my first question is a tough one, one I struggled with while preparing for our conversation. Do you say data or data? <laughs> I normally say data. Data for progress, yeah. Okay, well, now that we have that cleared up, what is data for progress? Um, you know, I think we're a think tank that isn't in the traditional mold of think tanks. Um, I think we, we try to ask questions that are sort of a little bit outside of, of where think tanks are right now. Um, we have fun, so we track ratios of, of senators, which is on Twitter, if you have uh, more replies than likes, that is known as a ratio. We, we did a roast of Paul Ryan. We, uh, we do a lot of memes. Um, but our more serious work centers around, around two main things. First off is, is just public opinion on sort of left issues that are often uh, not on the, the discussion. Um, so we did a lot of work on Medicare for all uh, and guaranteed jobs, stuff like repealing the, the Hyde Amendment, um, and showing that the public is really at a place where a lot of politicians aren't at this point. You know, the public overwhelmingly supports ending mandatory minimums. And yet there's still Democratic senators who, who have not got on board with that position. Um, the public overwhelmingly supports legalizing marijuana. And there are still senators who have not got on board with that position. Um, and the public overwhelmingly supports Medicare for all. And again, a lot of Democrats behind. Uh, the, second, the second sort of core bucket of work for us is the Medicaid expansion. Um, so we've been doing a, a series of, of reports, um, first in Virginia, um, next in Florida, and uh, we'll be moving on to, to North Carolina next, uh, showing overwhelming support of uh, Medicaid expansion in every state legislative district in the state. And we put that data in the hands of, of activists and the general public. Um, all of our maps have information of how to contact the state senator or, or state representative uh, because, you know, there's a lot of evidence that local representatives overestimate how conservative their electorate is. And there's also evidence that putting, you know, accurate and reliable data in front of them can influence their views. So those are the sort of two key buckets of work we're, we're doing right now. And, and we're going to continue expanding to include, you know, pulling on more left issues, um, hopefully soon stuff on defunding ICE and a universal basic income. Uh, and we're going to continue to expand to more states and also sort of begin to explore how differential turnout um, and voter suppression um, affect support for progressive policies. So why does this data not exist already? Why do you need to fill this gap in the first place? Um, I think that like the current think tank structure is really centered around what is currently sort of like on the agenda and in the mainstream. We are all people who haven't really spent a lot of time wanting to be within the mainstream and really wanting to pull the mainstream in our direction. Um, think tanks tend to be conservative, small c conservative, instead of sort of like moving the, the ball and, and sort of moving the Overton window, they sort of focus on, on maintaining credibility within it. And that's not really how, how we operate. Um, and we're also all, all millennials and we talk like millennials and we consume media and want to like make uh, our research consumable for an audience of millennials. So like we use a lot of memes um, and we do that intentionally. We um, have our publications 
you know, I, I, I reach out to reporters who, who are millennials when we give exclusives because it's, we're really committed to, to the idea of like bringing this and doing this for a next generation of progressives who don't have anyone who's really speaking to them. So you just mentioned the Overton window. Could you explain what that is and the impact you hope to have on it? Yeah, I mean, I think it is sometimes like an overused idea. Um, and I think it's often used as a way to pretend that having hot takes is, is activism. So I think we should always like keep that in mind that, you know, folks who are doing the real work on the ground are, are really what's driving this conversation. Um, but I think an, a great way to look at this is, is to take the policy of, of immigration. The Democratic Party operates as a very center-right party on the issue of immigration. And, and we've sort of reconciled and had these debates about things like financial deregulation. We've had debates about the crime bill. We've had debates about welfare bill. But we've never had debates about the extent to which the Democratic Party has been complicit in creating a white supremacist uh, immigration system. And also using the rhetoric of conservatives, like the, the sort of splitting of um, the immigrant community into groups of sort of like good immigrants and bad immigrants is a white supremacist trope in American politics. And it is a trope that Democratic politicians use as frequently um, as Republican politicians. And when you have a, a system in which the sort of like humanity of, of undocumented folks is up for debate by both major parties, when you have a system in which a consistent stream of funding for white supremacist deportation task forces is seen as the norm and is seen as the center, it's really hard to make a sort of like left critique uh, of that system. And so what we think a lot about is how do we sort of like put ideas out there and get ideas being discussed in the mainstream that actually sort of have a left perspective and that sort of reject the idea that you have to have an institution like ICE, that you have to have an institution like CBP. You have to have these institutions that, that are deeply authoritarian and, and have people who work for them that have deeply authoritarian impulses. Um, and so, so we think a lot about like how can we sort of take ideas that are seen as radical by elites and by pundits and by politicians and make them no longer be seen as radical. So why are these ideas that aren't so radical to the general public seen as radical among kind of the pundit class? Sure. I mean, I think there's there's a lot to it of the fact that most pundits come from a pretty small set of like elite institutions um, and, you know, mostly know each other and sort of, I mean, like there's definitely that sort of conditioning uh, but there's also the conditioning that like most mainstream elite institutions, um, even ones that, that are seen as sort of liberal, are pretty committed to U.S. sort of imperial ambitions, to the maintenance of capitalism as a, as a system. Um, and so like let's, let's take those two and sort of like dig down into them and be really concrete. Um, I think the maintenance of sort of capitalism a system and, and sort of like capitalist structures really comes through in the stuff we did on the job guarantee. Um, so the job guarantee is a wildly popular policy. You know, very few people dislike the idea of the, the job guaranteeing employment. 
So it's it's seen as very common sense by the general public because folks understand, you know, there are a lot of people who can't get jobs that want them. That is a waste of labor. That is a place that when you are unemployed and want want to be employed, it is it is very dehumanizing. It is is very depressing. It really does in, inflict a large emotional toll. So people understand that. Um, however, like the sort of elite class for a very long time has believed in this theory called the non-inflation accelerating rate of unemployment. Um, and the basic idea behind this was that if you got unemployment below three or four um, or five percent, you know, depending on, on which economist you're talking to, it would set off runaway inflation um, because workers would have so, so much bargaining power. And so for both Democratic and Republican presidents, a very key thing that the Federal Reserve has done is intentionally maintain a certain level of unemployment, this very degrading, dehumanizing, depressing thing. We have maintained it for the sole purposes of, you know, making sure that we don't eat into the returns of capital through inflation. Like most Americans, if you ask them, um, like, should we maintain a certain level of deeply degrading uh, situations for something like five to six to seven percent of the labor market for the purposes of ensuring um, high returns on investment to capitalists, they would probably say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, but if you ask that to elites up until basically 2017, when you know we had a very low uh, unemployment rate without skyrocketing inflation, but if you'd ask any elite up till like you know, through the Obama administration, you know, every Obama administration economist believe this this theory and believe this idea. So I, I'm like sort of dragging it out for a bit, but like I think that's a really good example of where the sort of elite wisdom and consensus is driven in a lot of ways by the needs of capital, um, and the general public doesn't really understand itself or situate itself as a in relation to that. What you're saying here reminds me a lot of the conversation that's been going on around the New York Times. Mm. And now something that got a lot of coverage, or perhaps not enough, was that the New York Times editor, James Bennett, said that the fundamental perspective of the New York Times is pro-capitalist. Yeah, And that's something that a lot of folks on the left were obviously very critical of. What do you think that this says about our media landscape? That the New York Times, which is arguably the most influential, has the most influential op-ed page in the country, is fundamentally pro-capitalist. What is the left supposed to do with that? Yeah, I actually think it's like genuinely kind of funny because I feel like if I had said that quote to a reporter, like I'd been like, yeah, I mean, like the New York Times is like fundamentally pro-capitalist. So they would have like been like, oh, another, you know, lefty telling me, you know, that the, the system is biased against them. But like in the New York Times editor like says it, it, it's seen as like, oh, yeah, like, of course, you know, it, it, it really does. I think it means that we need to create and I, and, I, and I love when young folks are creating institutions. It, it is something I that means a ton to me. And it's something I do, you know, as much work as I can to support um, because I don't trust the institutions that the last few generations have created. I, I don't know. I don't trust them. For, for a reason, like I think that the, the Jordan Peterson gets debate got so perfectly, which is that for a lot of these institutions, like the ideas of like white supremacy, rather than being like deeply a deep form of like violence and degradation is sort of like an intellectual, like a fun little intellectual like game, 
that like, oh, maybe, you know, black people are genetically inferior. Like, let's explore that. Um, rather than like that idea of, of the inferiority, the non-humanness of people of color is fundamental to a racist and a, you know, capitalist structure. This is seen as like, oh, let's like, let's let these like white intellectual dark web people debate the humanity of other folks. And so I think that like, we have to have a positioning towards these institutions that are stands fundamentally where they're coming from and what they're about. That being said, I have been, I have been published in the New York Times. I, I do write pieces for them, but I also maintain like write pieces for socialist magazines and stuff like that, because I think we have to make sure that we have power that is independent of those institutions, that we have channels of discourse and communications that are not subject to the gatekeeping of the New York Times opinion page, because their gatekeeping uh, is fundamentally going to exclude a lot of a lot of our ideas. And we have to make sure that we have like institutions and audiences that, that are independent of that. And we have to make sure we have independent power that can pressure the New York Times and the Washington Post um, to take our ideas seriously. So how does that all play into party politics? Obviously, we see this manifest on the right all the time. But you know, as you mentioned, Jordan Peterson doesn't identify as a conservative. Right. And a lot of people have said, hey, we need to welcome this perspective on the left. How does this work on the Democratic Party on our side? I think we both have spent a lot of time thinking about the Democratic Party. If we, like we are sort of coming of political age in a sort of weird time for the Democratic Party where um, like there are candidates like I know you, you followed her closely, Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez, who's running um, in New York's, I believe, 14th against Joe, Joe Crowley, um, who's a very powerful Democratic Party politician. Um, she talks on the campaign trail about defunding ICE. She talks about very coherently about imperialism. Uh, she talks very coherently about capitalism. There were like explicitly anti-capitalist politicians running um, for, for, for office. And I think that they should run on the Democratic Party line. I think they should contest power on the Democratic Party line um, because here's my sort of grand theory on this. Primary elections to me are, are mostly decided by sort of like the ideological stakes and the, the candidates. And then general elections are basically decided by I wear the Republican Party hat and I wear the Democratic Party hat and I pull the lever for X party. And so I think that what the left can do is contest very vigorously f those primary elections um, and then use the Democratic Party ballot line to, to gain power in the general elections. But like, I don't think like leftists should like give money to the DCCC or the DSCC or anything like that. Um, I just think that our candidates um, should contest uh, for power on to contest to win the Democratic Party ballot line and then use that as a, as a way to gain political office and political power. And ideally, I would like to see, um, and I, I just have started spitballing about this recently, so it's not fully fleshed out, but I would like to see 20 or so or 25 um, people who, who run as Democrats on the Democratic line form some sort of left caucus. Um, I think the progressive caucus is, is very interesting, but it's in the space that the Republican study group was a couple years ago, where it's so many people are in it that it's really sort of unclear um, if it can act as a block. 
And you almost need a sort of freedom caucus of the left that can act as a block and can use their ability to act as a block to extract concessions from leadership. So I think if we have a bunch of candidates who are running um, uh, like AOC is and, and then contesting for power, they should then form a block within within the House uh, that allows them to extract meaningful concessions um, and deliver concrete benefits to the progressives and socialists and leftists who supported them for office. Your perspective on how general elections work, I would say, is very different from what we tend to hear from pundits, even, you know, political leaders in the Democratic Party. Yeah. <laughs> a, a thing we've seen play out with throughout the primaries is this supposed conflict between people who have these centrist appeals that would supposedly win over, you know, middle-of-the-road voters, maybe some Republicans dissatisfied with Trump, mm-hmm. versus, you know, proud progressives who are making a more anti-Trump pitch, really uh, going to the base, which is far more diverse than what the centrists are going for. How do you respond to the people, to the party leaders who are saying, let's go to the center, let's nominate, quote-unquote, electable candidates in the primaries so that we can win in the general? Yeah, I tell them I will bet you $50. Like, I, I literally have a bet ongoing with um, a guy whose Twitter handle is Hotline Josh, who, who really believes this. And I said, okay, like, we are going to have in this cycle a number of candidates who fit your definition of electable and a number of candidates who defeated so-called electable candidates. Um, and we'll see. Like, we will, like, literally be able to test out our theory. Um, I think the perfect example of this is Nebraska Second, where... There was a guy named Brad Ashford who uh, was one of the two Republican or two Democrats who voted with Republicans to defund um, the DACA program. Um, so he's a very, very, very centrist. Um, he lost his uh, his seat in 2016. He wanted to run again in 2018. And everyone was like, well, he once held that seat. So regardless of the fact that he lost it, he is the only candidate who can who can maintain it. Um, and he faced a challenge from Carrie Eastman that was, I think, pretty widely dismissed. Um, and she out-organized him, uh, despite him outspending her. She out-progressived him, and she won that primary. And everyone said, oh, well, now she's bound to lose. And I'm like, well, if Brad Ashford's such a good candidate, why couldn't he win the primary? And if Carrie Eastman is such a bad candidate, why was she able to convince voters in, in that primary that she'd be a better candidate? And the thing that I think a lot of pundits don't realize is, like, if you actually watch the debates, um, Ashford was, was not doing good. Like he he was very off kilter. Like he's never been a particularly good fundraiser. He he doesn't meet like any of the traditional standards of like just being a good politician. He just happened to be a guy who held that seat at one point. Um, so I do think that like pundits sort of trip on themselves because they don't actually like hold to their own standards of what is a good politician. Um, they just sort of really believe that whoever says the most centrist stuff is bound to win. And like Joe, Joe Copser just like managed to squeak through a runoff with Mary Wilson. In the first round of voting, he outspent her 10 to 1. He spent $10 for every dollar she spent. And she still got a, the, the plurality of votes in the first round of voting. I think that these candidates are very much paper tigers. The way that I will be proven correct is, is through actually like existing politics catching up to where progressives have been. 
And that is, we're going to have a bunch of candidates who win primaries that they're not supposed to win. And I will bet solid money uh, that they're going to win those generals as well. And I think that no matter how many times we do this, that they'll move the goalposts on us. But I think that we can prove um, to ourselves and to candidates that running on a left progressive message, one that speaks to voters and not elites, uh, is 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 a viable uh, way to win elections. And then I think like we're just going to win elections. A lot of people have been calling a lot of pundits. I guess they count as people um, have been <laughs> calling Nebraska's second the Democratic primary the first victory for like the tea party of the left. Sure. Do you think that's an accurate description? Uh, so I think like we don't yet have a tea party of the left, but I think that people underestimate how close we are to it. I just think that the important thing to keep in mind is that the tea party of, of the left is going to look very different than the tea party, of the right? Because the democratic party is, is different. And so let me walk through really quick what that means. Let's let's define the Tea Party as a non-trivial number of incumbents facing serious primary challenges. You could make the argument that we're we're reasonably close to that. Um, so you've got um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez in New York's 14th. You have Siraj Patel in New York's 12th, who's outraised um, Carolyn Maloney for the last two quarters. Um, you have very serious challenges against um, Elliot Engel. You have very serious challenges against Al Lawson in Florida's 5th. You have a very serious challenge against Diana DeGette from Sarah Rowe in Colorado's 1st. Those challengers have all raised real amounts of money and have real on-the-ground ground campaigns. You also had a very serious challenge against Dan Lipinski in Illinois' 3rd, which came within two percentage points um, of winning. Uh, Marie Newman came within two percentage points of winning. So, so there are real challenges to incumbents. Eastman did not beat an incumbent, which I think is very key to, to understanding the Tea Party. Like the, the way the Tea Party had the effect was it was taking out incumbent politicians. And you also, you know, you also have a challenge that actually, am, I think there's a decent chance that it'll succeed, um, which is Ayanna Presley against Mike Capuano in Massachusetts 7th. So there's two things to note about these primary challenges. In almost every instance, there is a candidate of color who is facing a white incumbent. In most of these instances, they are facing a white incumbent who represents a district that is either majority people of color or close to it. Uh, Massachusetts 7th is the only majority POC district in Massachusetts. The 14th is the most diverse district in the country. And uh, Colorado's first is, I believe, at, at least um, at least 40% uh, people of color. So what we are actually going to see, I think, is a group of Democratic politicians who may even be like reasonably in line with the Democratic Party's sort of ideological position, um, which is far too centrist. Um, I, I mean, I think Carolyn Maloney voted against the Iran deal, um, which, you know, there's no excuse in, in a district as, as left as ours. And, and in my opinion, there's no excuse for not supporting something like defunding ICE in a district where Clinton has won, you know, 80 or 90 percent of the vote. But they're going to face challenges that have partially an ideological bent, but also partially have a descriptive representation um, bent, which is that the Democratic Party electorate is now very diverse. It is, you know, majority women. It is increasingly young. And yet our representatives are much older, much more likely to be white, much more likely to be men, uh, much more likely to be cis and straight. Uh, than the Democratic voters. 
And I think that that is going to be a potent force um, in politics. The, 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 the Ayanna Presley challenge is really worth noting in the sense, this is Massachusetts 7th District. She has been a councilwoman for eight years, and she is an incredibly talented politician. And she has to ask herself, what is the next step for me? And rather than sort of like step out of the way and give space to another generation of politicians, the Democratic incumbents remain pretty firmly entrenched. And at some point, that is going to like reach a fever pitch. And I think that what's going to happen is you're going to see uh, a bunch of folks challenge incumbents in this cycle uh, with mixed success. Um, I think Newman you know, got pretty close. I think that you might have one um, incumbent who gets beat. But I think you're going to see a lot of margins that make people nervous. I think AOC is going to hit, you know, at least 25% of the vote. I think I think that she's going to show real vulnerability. I think that Presley will, will either win or show deep vulnerabilities for Capuano. Um, and I, I think Roe also will show vulnerabilities for DeGette. Um, and we should, like, record another podcast after after you know, the primaries in the coming months, there's going to be a couple key ones to watch in the next, next few weeks. After that happens, you will sort of have chipped away at the idea that there's no way to beat an incumbent Democrat. Democrats are, are, are most likely going to take the house and they're going to under deliver to the base. Um, when the base, what the base believes it is getting when it is voting for a Democrat this cycle and what they are going to get when they vote for a Democrat are two very different things. Trump will most likely not be impeached you will most likely have continued funding for white supremacist institutions, um, for the military industrial complex that Democrats will now be complicit in. And people are going to ask, why am I voting for Democrats who are voting for Trump in Trump's policies? And I think that that environment, plus you are going to have groups like Indivisible who are currently trying to play an inside game, they're going to start to ask, at what point is this inside game need to be sort of mixed with an outside game, a game in which we're, we're actively cultivating and challenging um, for power in a serious way. I think that those two forces, um, the fact that there are lots of young, very talented politicians who want to hold office, and the fact that Democrats are going to be under-delivering, is going to create circumstances that we can use to create a sort of Tea Party-like situation. And the difference, of course, is that the Tea Party was mostly is a, is a white supremacist force, and it is a force of, of people who don't actually give a I don't know if I want to swear give care You're about to swear as much right. as you want. They don't give a fuck about you know people of color, and we in order to like wield power successfully, this these left politicians are going to be very capable and are going to actually have to craft policy. So it is fair to say we will have Tea Party circumstances in that incumbents are going to lose elections. But it is not fair to say that we're going to have Tea Party circumstances in that these candidates who win office will not be able to govern. Far from it. I believe, and I think you believe, and I think everyone who has ever met her knows that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would be a forceful legislator who would craft and deliver legislation to her community. No one doubts that. The Tea Party has not done that. They have not actually delivered on the promises they made to their voters. So I think a lot of activists have a concern about electoral politics in general. And I think that's very valid. You know, you have these people who are running on very leftist platforms sometimes, you know, on occasion. We're seeing mm -hmm. that more this year. Yeah. They're running as proud progressives. And then they get in office and suddenly things change. Mm -hmm. How do we 
actually hold people accountable, hold our electeds accountable? And what do you say to folks on the left who just don't want to validate an electoral system that has rewarded white supremacy for so long? Yeah, I mean, first off, I I understand exactly where they're coming from. I have a lot of sympathies to that position. I have watched Tish James, who first won office uh, as a WFP, Working Families Party. We have that in New York candidate. On the insistence of, of Cuomo, it seems, you know, refused to take the WFP line. Um, it's a very real problem. And it's one that people who think a lot about electoral politics and do work in electoral politics have to take seriously. And I take it seriously. And I am not the type of person who wants to criticize activists or say that what they're doing is invaluable. It's incredibly valuable. An electoral strategy can only work if you have people who fucking don't want to do electoral politics doing non-electoral politics. Because you're exactly right that there is no way to hold any politician accountable except through the, you know, the threat of a viable primary challenge. So I think that there needs to be a more understanding around people who do electoral politics and are centered in electoral politics. First off, the amount of privilege that it takes to be serious in electoral politics. You have to look a certain way. You have to talk a certain way. You have to have certain characteristics that will allow you to get in the room with politicians and be taken seriously. It is a deep privilege to be able to think in any way about electoral politics seriously. Um, and people should really keep that in mind and hold that pretty constantly. Um, if you do electoral politics, you should also think of people who do activists not as your enemies in any way, even if often what they're doing could be frustrating to you. Uh, you have to understand that they have legitimate grievances with the way that electoral politics are being done and that their activism ultimately makes it easier for you to successfully have like a left vision come true. So I, so yeah, I think that like there is a sense of people who like do electoral politics of really like disdaining activism and not taking it seriously, not taking its tactics seriously, not even being interested in talking to activists to understand that stuff. And it's really gross and people need to stop doing it. And I don't think any, anyone in electoral politics should spend any time lecturing activists. And I think that if you're not seriously engaging with folks who are doing that sort of on the ground activism, you really are, I think, selling out to electoral politics in a really dangerous way. And if you're not understanding that politicians are politicians and you can't love them or trust them or think that they are going to like have your best interests at heart, you shouldn't be doing this. If you're sort of being seduced into the idea that ex-politician will save you, you're wrong because these politicians are working within a set of constraints imposed upon them that are incredibly powerful. Um, and they're also working within a set of constraints that are imposed upon themselves by their own ideology. You, you know, Dan Lipinski, who represented Illinois third, um, is a member of the pro-life caucus. He is not a member of the pro-life caucus because there is any electoral force within his district that is making him a do that. He is he is a member of the pro-life caucus because he is deeply committed to patriarchal systems. There were 12 Democrats, I think, who voted to roll back Dodd-Frank. They did not do that because of electoral circumstances. They did that because they are committed fundamentally to supporting a plutocratic banking system. Um, so we have to like keep that in mind. It, 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 we have to have a diversity of tactics and the the, the electoral folks who are in every case, I think, are incredibly privileged to be doing the work that they're doing, need to uh, not take swipes at the, the work that activists are doing and not try to dictate 
the limits of activism and the mechanisms that activists choose to, to put forward their cause. Hey, everybody. This is Nathan from Millennial Politics. We're going to take a quick break because we want to tell you about our new sponsor. A new company called C-Note is an award-winning social enterprise that has created a new way to save where you can earn up to 35 times more on your savings, all while increasing economic opportunity in local communities across America. The average C-Note customer earned an extra $400 last year compared to traditional savings products. So not only do you earn more with C-Note, but every dollar that you invest drives positive social impact. So instead of funding big bank bonuses, your money is going to help female and minority entrepreneurs start small businesses, build affordable housing, and support other community development projects. With C-Note, you earn up to 2.5% while building a more inclusive economy, one community investment at a time. Sign up today at mycnote.com slash politics. Again, that's my, the letter C, note, N-O-T-E dot com slash politics. And know that C-Note does not charge any fees. There are no minimums. And sign up take less than five minutes. Check them out. I'm going to go back to the very beginning of our conversation when we were talking about immigration. Because I think immigration is kind of whether we like it or not, become the issue under Donald Trump. And I think Mm -hmm. that's because it's such an obviously highly racialized issue. It's so easy to racialize. It has always been racialized. And you, you touched upon how the Democratic Party has enabled this. What is different this year? And what is, why do we need to flip that history? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like, let's be really specific in terms of what, what we're talking about. Rahm Emanuel was uh, a very powerful advisor under Bill Clinton. There are now internal documents that have been released in which he advocates under Clinton that in order to sort of like win over centrist voters, they need to pursue um, and achieve um, record deportations, is what he says, record deportations. Clinton um, signed into law the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996, which I don't, I don't particularly like this metaphor, but it's useful. It sort of loaded the gun that Trump is firing now in the sense that the Democratic Party created the apparatus for mass deportation. And what they, the way they did this was by creating a large number of crimes. I'll put those in finger quotes. Uh, crimes that were deportable. Um, and it's really, I mean, like any sort of theory of justice, you understand how this is wrong. I mean, I, I mentioned in a piece I wrote for The Nation on, on why we should abolish ICE, um, banishment is, in many societies, is seen as the equivalent of death or worth, worse than death. The idea of being separated from a community um, that you were, you were ingrained in is seen as the equivalent of death. And we, through our system, through the law that Bill Clinton signed, essentially created a death penalty for things as as silly as driving without a license. So the Democratic Party was complicit in the policy framework that Trump has used, in the intellectual framework that Trump has used. I have a lot of respect for Barack Obama. However, the history books will remember that the greatest failing of his domestic policy was immigration. And allowing the right to define the immigration is a discussion between good immigrants and bad immigrants with bad immigrants being people who, you know, had drunk driving arrests because 
white guys who have drunk driving arrests can become president of the United States. You know, George W. Bush had a drunk driving arrest. But if you're an undocumented person, you have a driving arrest, that is, a, you, can, you are now like fast-tracked for deportations. And so much of the media does this thing where it's like, oh, this person was deported. Also, they didn't have a felony. I don't give a fuck. Anything that you have done is not equal to being deported. And it is really wrong for us to like imply that people who do have some sort of felony arrest deserve to be stripped from their families and the communities that they have lived in for for decades um, and sent to a country they don't know, often facing the possibility of death. And, you know, the the way we know this is white supremacist, by the way, is the fact that we now know that um, immigration authorities have detained American citizens, almost all American citizens who are people of color, and they, they, they can't in this like very dystopian scenario. Uh, the Democratic Party is complicit in both the policy apparatus and the rhetorical framework that Trump is using. Many of them are, are still doing it. Like I, I spend a lot of time trying to convince Democratic incumbents to say things about ICE, to call out those abuses and to call for the organization to be defunded. But they are fundamentally terrified of some sort of like non-existent voter who is like who is going to like vote them out for calling out ice or for meaningfully doing congress's job of overseeing ice so this is the perfect issue for a leftist intervention because it's an issue where the left wing of the party is center right and the right wing of our political system is fascism and we have to have some sort of socialist humanist vision of what it actually looks like to have an immigration policy. And the last thing I'll note on this is immigration is really has molded itself pretty amazingly to whatever sort of white supremacist tropes are existing in the discourse of the time. So in the sort of 90s, when the big concern was drugs, right, that the, the drug war and crime, like immigration was understood fundamentally as like a drug and crime issue. And that's how we conceptualized it. And then after 9-11, the way that white supremacy was largely functioning in society was, was less about drugs and crime. It was more about this othering um, in this, this, this fear of terrorism, this fear of security. And then all of a sudden, immigration stopped being a drug and crime thing, is now folded under the DHS. Um, you know, ICE is under DHS. It becomes homeland security. We have always had an immigration policy that was fundamentally understood in policy terms in rhetorical terms and journalistic terms around white supremacy. We've never had an immigration policy that centered humanism, that centered creating flourishing communities, that centered creating economies that work for everyone. We've always centered immigration as an othering and as whatever sort of dominant white supremacist trope is in the American politics. I think it's really important as you noted, to recognize that Democrats are so complicit in everything that's happening oh, under yeah. Trump. But something I'm very concerned about is once Trump's out of office, which I hope will be 2021, yes. I doubt it'll be through impeachment, Democrats or a lot of the people who are suddenly involved in the quote-unquote resistance yeah. are going to lose interest. They're going to be like, well, our, our guys are back in power, so mm -hmm. we're solid. How do we prevent that? How do we make sure there's this continuing movement regardless of who's in the White House? There, there's going to be a, a, a lot of that that happens. I think it will be a mixed bag, though. I think what you're going to have is like you're going to have some people who do become active around Trump 
who Trumpy is stays their only thing, and then they sort of go off, you know? There are other going to be people who are really activated by Trump and then begin to understand how Trump is part of a broader system. And I think the left should do work. And I mean, I do this work specifically, and I'm not saying like everyone should do it. And I think that there are a lot of people for whom like this work would be an amount of emotional labor that wouldn't make sense for them to do. But people who are privileged in a way that they can speak to sort of these mainstream progressives who are coming online need to spend a lot of time. Like I I engage with people who are mainstream progressives because I think that like, I want them to understand the ways that what they, they are upset about, about Trump is what I am upset about, like a lot of other things. And that Trump is a product of forces that are bigger than him. And a lot of the evil things that are, we're seeing that he's doing are the products of like forces that have existed for a lot longer. Trying to get people to understand those stories and having politicians who are telling those stories and having activists who are telling those stories is going to be really meaningful. And so I I think that we can get some people to understand this reality. And I think that we can get them to continue doing activism. There's actually a sort of interesting thing that happened in North Carolina. Um, It's it's on the right, but I think it's it's telling. Um, There's a guy named Robert Pittinger who is an incumbent and he lost a primary election to a guy named Mark Harris. He lost for, for very terrifying, terrifying reasons. He lost because I think at one point he had supported funding for Planned Parenthood and like all the right sort of, you know, force him out. But it's important to note that even though the Republican Party now has control of every lever of government power, there are still parts of their base that are working to unseat incumbents. And I think that 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 will be like true happiness for me is if 2022 some democrat loses a primary challenge cuz that'll tell me like all right there is still there are still these forces but i do think that a lot of people have come online in a very real way come online in the sense of like they were not connected to politics they are now connected to politics it's going to be a mixed bag as to how many of them stay but there is a sense in which i think you can't really put the the genie back in the bottle or something like whatever the metaphor is like you can't take away that from all these people because there are people who are going to come alive and come awaken to the realities that Trump is the product of very powerful forces of like capitalism, white supremacy. Um, and those forces will exist beyond him. People who are capable of doing it should be making sort of those inroads to communities who, who can be radicalized to understand this and also creating institutions that are separate from, I, I don't want to like use the resistance as like a, in a negative way. I think that a lot of what people, a lot of resistance activism and organizing is very useful, and I, I've seen it be very powerful. Um, but we do need to have institutions um, that are separate from that and separate from the Democratic Party and are accountable to leftists and socialists and understand this and will make, we, we will continue to exist even if some of the resistance momentum goes away. Well, lastly, where can folks find you and your work online? Oh, man, so many places. Uh, so I tweet at Sean McAwee at S-E-A-N. M-C-E-L-W-E-E. Um, data for Progress is dataforprogress.org. And we've got a ton of research there, always fun stuff. And um, I most frequently write for The Nation. Um, so I have a contributor page there and I write there about um, two times a month. Um, but like most of my reporting, I just report it straight onto Twitter. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks again for coming on and having this discussion with us. Let's follow up after we have more of these primaries and keep all of this going. Absolutely. Okay, great. 
Well, again, for our listeners, I'm Jordan Valerie, politics editor at Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.